Stand by. Stand by. You have entered a locked orbit with Precinct Omega. Your data has been lodged and recorded. You have one message. Playing message from Precinct Omega. Welcome to another episode of the Precinct Omega Miniatures podcast and this is a news episode. I've been sweeping up the news from the miniatures industry over the last few weeks, plucked out a few of my favourites to share with you. So with that said, let's uh, get to the news. Parabellum Games is a company I've talked about a fair amount over the last couple of years and although they've been moderately quiet with new releases, they have got some new stuff coming out all focused around a new faction called the Old Dominion. The Old Dominion is basically undead ancient Rome with a kind of 40k Fall of the Eldar twist on their history, although they all look very much embedded in that ancient Rome undead look to them. They've got a number of heroes have been released, including a, a fallen divinity, uh, and a set of three bone golems have also been released. Now, the individual heroes, the first two are human-sized miniatures, and they look very much like Roman officers with metal masks on. The Fallen Divinity is a much larger demonic angel-type creature with an undead twist, and the bone golems, unsurprisingly, are enormous constructs made out of bones, but interestingly, also made out of tombs and mausoleums. The individual heroes themselves are sort of 26 euros per hero. That's sort of 22 pounds, 28 dollars around that. You think that's a reasonable price for a hero, but I feel like it's a little on the steep side for what's being offered here. The Fallen Divinity, meanwhile, is a somewhat eye-watering 133 euros. That said, she is pitched to customers through Parabellum's uh, Artisan series. Now, I've not dug deep into that, but I think their Artisan series is a range of miniatures that are high-quality sculpting, cast in resin, and pitched firmly in the direction of top painters and hobbyists, You know, people who are going to be painting up these miniatures to appear in competitions all over the world. So I don't know whether there's going to be some other version of the Fallen Divinity made available or whether it's Artisan series or nothing. I don't know if the Artisan series is limited edition. It is nevertheless a very beautiful miniature. Whether it's 133 euros or not, your mileage may vary. The Bone Golems are probably the most interesting. They are, in, in proportion, they very firmly resemble a Warhammer 40,000 Space Marine Dreadnought. Um, but you wouldn't mistake them for one. They are clearly made out of bones, and they are also clearly made out substantially of the remains of the graves in which those bones were buried, and they have done it beautifully. Uh, they have tapped into that late Roman, early Byzantine era of style, and, and it's got lots of echoes that, that really capture that pseudo-historical, pseudo-fantasy setting that they've got going on. Only other thing worth mentioning about these guys is that the individual heroes are 38 mil scale. About The, the game itself is 38 mil. So human-sized characters are 38 mil to around the eyes. 
It's an interesting choice of scale. Obviously, it's not really compatible with any other mass market game, with the exception of Star Wars Legion. And I don't think there's any intent that these miniatures should be compatible with that game or vice versa. So uh, my only assumption is that Parabellum is seeking to sort of push people towards focusing on both their miniatures and their game through the use of that particularly large miniature scale. Having said that, although the human-sized heroes are definitely uh, too large to really stand in with any other human-sized character in the 28 to sort of 32 mil scale, nevertheless, the Fallen Divinity and the Bone Golems, because of their sort of supernatural nature, are going to fit in just fine with all kinds of scales of miniature. Worth checking out if you like that kind of thing. Moving on, we're going to have a look at Oathsworn miniatures. Now, Oathsworn hit the market a few years ago with their Burrows and Badgers miniatures skirmish game, and they've garnered a great deal of positive response. If you've not come across it before, Budgers and Bad. Badgers and Burrows. Badgers and Burrows is a fantasy skirmish game where the characters are anthropomorphic woodland creatures. So think Red Wall, that kind of stuff. Um, they have a, a quite a reasonable range of miniatures available now, but they have run a few Kickstarters since launch in order to put new uh, miniatures ranges into the market. And the latest miniatures range is focused on urban skirmish. So they've got a set of townsfolk, they've got a set of like gang fighters, and they've got a set of city watch miniatures, all in the same anthropomorphic animal style. Uh, they're traditionally sculpted in green stuff, cast in, I believe, white metal rather than resin. Uh, not sure about the prices, but go check out their Kickstarter to see for yourself. Wargames Atlantic have also dropped some interesting new previews. Now, I usually won't do previews where there aren't miniatures to look at, and at the moment all we've got of these guys are photos of a handful of STLs, but they are interesting enough to my particular interests that I thought I'd mention them, because Wargames Atlantic are adding a new range to their Deathfields sci-fi humans range, uh, and these latest releases are very, very much based and inspired by the uh, Marines from Alien, from Starship Troopers, and even just Vietnam War era US Marine Corps. Um, they are definitively sci-fi, but they are rocking the body armor and the helmets and the fatigues, uh, and their weapons are very much pulse rifle style. So check out their previews worth a look, particularly if you're a Horizon War Zero Dark player. I think they could make excellent Red Force or indeed Heroes options. Crack on Games are an old friend of Precinct Omega. I know the owner moderately well. Ross has been a generous supporter of Precinct Omega and our efforts in the past, and I've thrown some money at his Kickstarters. So he's got a new Kickstarter coming out now, which is worth checking out. It's particularly interesting because he's mostly focused in the past on uh, fantasy stuff and sort of uh, generic adventurer-style fantasy miniatures, mostly uh, monsters but his new releases are back to science fiction. And it's a very old school retro science fiction look for two new sets of what he calls tactical dreadnought armor. That might be a phrase that sounds familiar to those of you who remember Warhammer 40,000 from the old school, because that's what GW used to call Terminator armor. But this tactical dreadnought armor is quite different. Well, I say quite different. It is aesthetically 
a clearly different design to early Terminator armor. Um, but nevertheless, it is clearly supposed to be like mini mech armor. So it's one person power armor with uh, big head, big arms, big legs, but just containing one person with their arms in a suit moving around. Uh, got a real retro look to them, but beautifully sculpted, cast in white metal. If you like that kind of thing, check out Crack On Games and their new Kickstarter. TT Combat. Uh, that I've spoken about in the past. Now, if you haven't come across TT Combat before, they are the games development spin-off from Troll Trader. Troll Trader used to be, well, still is actually, a stalwart of the UK event scene uh, because they've been trading for the best part of 20 years in second-hand miniatures all over the country. But they spun off their TT Combat games development range to both acquire... Uh, games from companies going out of business and to develop their own and they have made a big thing of uh, drop uh, drop fleet commander uh, rumble slam and carnival uh, drop fleet commander is a spaceship combat game uh, very compatible miniatures range with things like horizon wars infinite dark uh, rumble slam is like luchador fantasy miniatures gaming uh, so it's a wrestling sports game and Carnival is a pseudo-historical fantasy game set in an early modern Venice following an international supernatural catastrophe. Um, all worth having a look at. Um, they've announced new event-exclusive miniatures. Uh, the one for Drop Fleet Commander is called The Anomaly. It's a spaceship. Uh, it doesn't have an aesthetic that matches any of the existing... Uh, factions. So we don't know yet whether this spaceship is going to be an ally that can be used by any faction or whether this is the first release of a brand new faction for Drop Fleet Commander. Don't know? If you're into spaceships, check it out. It has a very, it has a new aesthetic, but it nevertheless really sort of fits in with what they're doing with Drop Fleet Commander. Um, their release for Rumble Slam isn't strictly a new miniature. Uh, it's a clear resin version of an existing miniature. So they have a Chameleon Man uh, character for Rumble Slam who can, of course, turn themselves invisible, which Chameleons can't do, but never mind. Um, and it can turn itself invisible, so this clear resin version is intended to swap out for the existing character to be an invisible one. Uh, then the um, Carnival release is a Hammerhead person would be appropriate for the Hammerhead event, obviously. Um, it's, it's like a shark person, but instead of the regular Carnival shark person, which already exists, this one has a Hammerhead design. Uh, if you play any fantasy game that includes weir sharks or anything like that, worth looking at, and obviously an interesting release for Carnival. Their fourth event-only release, however, is the most interesting one, and the main reason it's featuring in the news this time uh, which is a 32mm Scourge Warrior. Now, the Scourge is a faction that appears in Drop Fleet Commander and Drop Zone Commander, which is the uh, tabletop battle uh, battle game, 10 mil battle game in the same universe. Uh, the Scourge is a faction, and they've now released a 32mm Scourge Warrior. And they've described it in their blog as the first of its kind. Now, whether that means this is the first of a series of limited edition event only 32 mil characters from the different factions or whether it means this is the first miniature release for a whole new skirmish game set in the drop zone drop fleet universe 
we don't know yet but it is a pretty miniature and i'm really interested if i get to an event i will definitely pick one up check it out uh, it'll be really exciting to see where tt combat goes with that range and DreamPod 9 uh, spoke about them a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't come across them, they make the Heavy Gear and Jovian Chronicles miniatures games. Heavy Gear is a mech-focused setting, and they've got three new releases for the Eden faction in Heavy Gear. They've got the Centaur Cavalry Golem, uh, and each of these is a set of two miniatures. Uh, they've got the Doppel Strike Golem, and they've got the Druid Engineering Golem. I think Golem is just the Eden term for a mech. Now, I don't know if it's supposed to be a piloted mech or it's a remote control mech. I don't know enough about the factions to say. It looks like any other mech in the setting um, in terms of its proportions and its, its aesthetic. The cavalry golem, the, the centaur, as the name implies, from the waist up is a standard mech. Arms, heads, weapons, the whole works. From the waist down, not a horse. Uh, it's an anti-gravity platform. So it's a little bit of an interesting design. Not sure how I feel about it, but it's, uh, it's a thing. Uh, the Dopal Strike Golem is a bit more of a standard mech. It's a little bit of a gawky design, I think. It doesn't, doesn't quite tick my uh, boxes for, for an excellent release, um, but it is a, a fairly standard uh, mech release. And then the Druid Engineering Golem is my favourite of the three because it is a little bit more distinctive, a little bit more unique whilst not being as unique as the Centaur. Uh, the scale of all of their miniatures, they're 10 mil scale, uh, but the mechs are around 28 to 32 mil tall, which means that not only do they fit in well with mechs from other ranges like Ironwind Metals, EM4, TT Combat, um, but they are also good fit-ins for 28mm combat robots if you want to run that kind of thing in a game like, hey, Horizon War Zero Dark or similar. And last in this session of news, we've got new releases from Black Scorpion. Black Scorpion's been around a long time and they've got a really nice selection of different miniatures in a, in a wide range with particularly strong showings in both cowboy and pirate skirmish uh, collections for 28mm. They have released games for those, although they didn't make a huge impact on the market. Um, but their new releases are all classic fantasy stuff. So we've got a classic wizard with a pointy hat and a beard. He's got an owl on his shoulder and a staff and stuff. Very nice sculpt. We've got a classic elf ranger in leather armour and a bow standing on a rock showing off like elves do. And the last and my favourite is a fantasy oriental female warrior and a very nice, very well-judged release, in, in my opinion. That's the one of those three that I would most like to get my hands on. Um, now, I haven't seen them appear in their shop yet, but the greens are visible on their blog, so have a look at those. Right, that's all the news I've got for this session. We will move on and talk about something else. Now, I want to talk in this episode about mission creep. Uh, now, it, if you're at all familiar with you know, military stuff or, or politics around uh, military operations, you'll be familiar with the expression mission creep. And in a, in a sort of military context, what it means is the tendency of any given operation to expand the scope of what it's attempting to achieve in response to mostly political pressures. So 
you think you're going in to protect a population and you end up extending your mission beyond merely protecting the population to enacting strikes against a local threat and before you know it you're in the position of re-establishing a government and so it rolls on okay that's broadly mission creep mission creep occurs in business all the time um, and and i don't want to get too deep into it because we're trying to focus on on the world of miniatures wargaming and, and the tabletop industry and part of this comes from my own recent experience and reflection upon you know what what i could have done better over the last 12 months and i wanted to talk about how a business in this industry finds itself slipping into a mission creep state and when we're in business business and, and the military are not well matched across the board in terms of good principles because the military t tends to work on topics in discrete chunks you know we have an operation the operation has an objective you pursue that objective the objective may creep but eventually even if it takes 20 years or longer the mission reaches some form of conclusion and you pull everybody out and you get ready for the next mission in business of course the assumption is that that things will continue to roll and continue to move and that there'll be more things to pursue with each passing day so the idea of mission creep isn't particularly a, a good uh, metaphor but i'm going to use it here because it fits with what we're talking about which is where a business begins to pursue activities that it hadn't set out intentionally to pursue and there are really three circumstances under which this occurs the first is the healthiest which is in response to customer demand in other words your customers are reaching out to you saying we want x please make x and by and large that is a healthy form of mission creep it may not be in your business plan it may not be in your uh, strategy to be pursuing this thing product whatever it might be but if your customers are asking for it and you deliver it at least i mean your heart is in the right place and at the same time you have a reasonable expectation that you're going to make money from the experience of delivering what your customers have asked for however there are some uh, traps to watch out for in responding to customer demand the first and most obvious one perhaps is that just because your customers ask for it doesn't mean that they will buy it fact is your noisiest customers are often your most passionate but that doesn't automatically mean they're your most profitable nor does it mean that they are automatically representative of your customer base as a whole so just because the customers that you can see or hear are demanding something doesn't automatically mean that it's worth investing time and money in the second one which to an extent is a is a fact across all of the things we're talking about here is that distraction dilutes the focus of the business uh, focus is an extremely useful thing to have particularly as a sole trader particularly in a niche industry to decide what it is you're going to do and to pursue that with relentless laser guided focus 
is generally a good thing. Pursue it to the point that either it succeeds or you have exhausted every possibility of it succeeding and then move on. Um, and, and if you allow yourself to be distracted by things that your customers are asking for, then you dilute your focus and you aren't delivering that laser guided attention that you need to whatever was the core product service of your business enterprise that was at the heart of your strategy at the outset. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't respond to customers and in many cases we're going to say that mission creep isn't always a bad thing, sometimes it's positively essential. But customer response is a form of mission creep. Really good example of this that has come up recently, I haven't had a chance to really talk about it in depth yet, but we will in due course. So Corvus Belly, whom I speak about frequently as a, as a business that generally seems to do things right, um, are the company behind Infinity the Game and related miniatures games, and they have recently announced uh, a fantasy miniatures skirmish game that they are going to be releasing, which they have given the name of Warcrow. Not that surprising, given that that is how Corvus Belli translates from Latin into English. So Warcrow is a product that their customers have been asking for for a long time. Almost since the first Infinity game was released, people have been saying, will there be a fantasy game? Is there going to be a fantasy range to accompany this, this sci-fi? Because they like the aesthetics of Infinity the game and they wanted to see the same kind of aesthetical design and game intelligence applied to a fantasy setting. Now, I'm not saying for a second that Corvus Belli is allowing uh, Warcrow to be mission creep. I don't know their business plan. Um, you know, I haven't got that insight behind the curtain. Um, they are planning a soft launch. They are planning a limited launch through Kickstarter, and I'm sure they will judge from the basis of how successful the Kickstarter is as to what else is going to follow in terms of products for Warcrow. But they are planning beyond the Kickstarter game. Um, now, it's mission creep from my perspective in the sense that they have been laser focused on Infinity the game for the last 10 plus years, and now they have announced that a fantasy game is coming out. So they are letting their product range expand and they're doing so in response to customer feedback. Now, it's probably not true mission creep in the sense that I suspect, as I say, Corvus Belli tends to do things right, so I'm fairly sure that somebody high up in the company has actually planned for this, has looked at their business plan for the next 12, 24, 48 months and said, we are going to launch a fantasy game and it's going to follow the following pattern and this is how it's going to embed within the framework of our games and our products and this is our aspiration for the game. So, you know, in the sense that they probably have not actually let Warcrow distract them from their core business, maybe it's unfair to call it mission creep, but in terms of a product that is brought to market in response to persistent customer demand, uh, Warcrow is a good example. The other way in which uh, mission creep can emerge uh, is through unexpected R&D. Now, obviously research and development is something that goes on in any business more or less continuously. It's good to do it mindfully. 
this is often a failure is that people do R&D without intent, uh, without focus. And this was certainly the case uh, in Games Workshop some years ago, before the current leadership took over, um, that there was some unfocused R&D going on. People were kind of underemployed slightly. And uh, if you've seen my interviews with Jake Thornton and Gav Thorpe, uh, you will have seen evidence of that, that people were underemployed and overburdened with imagination. Um, and so they began developing their own things and doing their own ideas and pursuing them down certain paths. And sometimes that ended up in a product. Um, and that's a pretty good example of unexpected R&D leading to mission creep, that the company ends up releasing something it hadn't planned to release. It wasn't part of their long-term strategy. It wasn't something they'd embedded into their release schedule, but somebody somewhere has made it and you kind of go, well, we've made it, so we might as well put it out there. Um, the challenge with this is that this is effectively experimental marketing. So you're putting a lot of money into something to bring it to market with no real plan behind how that is going to deliver on your investment. Lots of money in, not necessarily anything out. And it also means that people are diverting their focus away from the core business. There is a risk in this kind of enterprise of brand dilution. And we'll go back to Corvus Belli there for a second. And this is something which I am certain they're going to, to do well with Warcrow, but which they could do badly because, you know, they have a brand image. You know, their brand image is built upon this sci-fi setting that they've created in Infinity the game. And if their fantasy setting doesn't pick up upon those aesthetic, stylistic, design ideas that they have built into Infinity the game, there's a risk there that their brand image is going to be diluted by a completely new concept, a completely new aesthetic that doesn't mesh well with Infinity the game. I spoke earlier in this podcast about TT Combat and their games, Drop Fleet Commander, Rumble Slam, Carnival, uh, and Drop Zone Commander. And that's a good example, actually, because, of course, TT Combat acquired those games from companies that, that weren't able to develop them further. So there's no aesthetic or design unity between those products. Uh, design Drop Zone Commander and Drop Fleet Commander, obviously, being exceptions because they're from the same company and, and they very much bind together. But Rumble Slam and Carnival then don't sit logically alongside those things. Um, if we would go back to Games Workshop, if you compare Warhammer 40,000 with uh, Warhammer Age of Sigmar, then you can see that there are some clear design coherences, both in the miniatures range, the aesthetic, and the game design that bind those things together. And if you look at games like Kill Team, like Necromunda, you'll see the same thing going on. You know, they've got this very clear brand image around what it means to play a Games Workshop game. Um, there's a risk of allowing mission creep to dilute your brand image. Okay, that's two. The third one um, is commercial necessity. So this is the third thing that drives you into mission creep is that basically you got it. Uh, because what you were doing, your plans, your focus, your strategy, 
ain't working. Um, and it's not working in a sufficiently catastrophic way that you flail around unintelligently for some hope. Uh, this is the proper Hail Mary. Uh, this is the, the last arrow in your quiver kind of stuff. Um, and commercial necessity cannot be resisted to the extent that if it's that or going out of business or it's that or failure, it's hard to argue against pursuing anything in that option. But first of all, it carries the risks that we've already talked about in our unexpected R&D. The second is that whatever solution you come up with when you're in an emergency that commercial necessity is driving you into mission creep is that it's going to be a sticking plaster, plaster response and that means it will be under-designed, under-resourced, under-executed and knee-jerk responses by their very nature don't fit into the business plan. Now I've been giving examples all the way along we've gone. The example here is I'm going to point back at myself. My release last year of my fantasy skirmish game um, Blood and a Black Flag was a classic commercial necessity response. Um, my business, basically I had overextended myself. Um, I was running out of money and I was flailing around to go what, what can I do quickly that might make me some more money that might get me to the end of the year in the black. Um, and I had the game that became Blood and the Black Flag from a previous design work and I was like, right, fine, I'm gonna gonna put this out. It wasn't in my business plan, it wasn't in my strategy, uh, not, not to release it at that point, it, it was like two, three years down the line when I had time to do it properly. Now I've released this product into the market Obviously, it, it didn't reverse my fortunes last year. Of course it wouldn't. Why would I have thought it did? Um, it was a knee-jerk response. It was a sticking plaster solution. And unsurprisingly, sticking plaster is not a solution to a compound fracture. So from all of that, what I take away is, is beware of mission creep. If you are a small uh, entrepreneur in this industry, if you are coming to me for examples of what not to do, uh, this is a big one. Be very conscious of mission creep and its potential impact upon your ability to deliver your core business. Um, stick to your strategy. Stay on target, I guess, is, uh, is the message I'm, I'm offering you from this. When things come up, when you get customer demand, when you get unexpected R&D, build it into the business plan. You know, so go back to Corvus Belli. You know, people have been asking for years for a fantasy game from Corvus Belli. I suspect that theirs is not mission creep, theirs is not a knee-jerk response, quite the opposite, that they have probably been thinking about this for years, thinking about when is the right time to do this, when is the time that it's going to generate the most interest, the best feedback? When are we going to have a product that we have meshed in with our core business that we can release that's going to fit with what our players, what our fans expect? That's how to do it. Uh, if you get yourself into commercial hot water, as I did, uh, and, and you're struggling, 
resist, resist, resist the temptation to just release something in the hope that maybe it'll be a runaway hit and all of a sudden you'll make all that money you need. It won't be. You won't. You will do far better to sit on that thing, come up with a better plan. Do what I did. You know, stop. Go and do something else more reliable to earn money if you can. Um, do not simply throw things out there in the hope that something will work. Um, that's, that's not a business plan worth talking about. Okay, that's all I've got to say on that subject. Uh, I'm going to come back in a moment and just talk briefly about Kickstarter. Now, if you've not been paying attention, Precinct Omega is preparing to launch a Kickstarter. Um, there'll be a miniatures Kickstarter. I'm releasing some miniatures inspired by Horizon War Zero Dark. Um, Horizon War Zero Dark is a miniatures agnostic game. You don't need these miniatures to play the game. They're just miniatures that have been inspired by the characters that appear in the story. Um, and I, I wanted to see what I could do. I paid somebody to design the miniatures, so they're going to the market. Now, just to speak back to the topic of this podcast, this is a slight example of doing it right. I, I won't pretend that I've done it perfectly because I, I don't have the luxury. Um, when I first arranged to have these miniatures designed, it was classic mission creep. It was accidental R&D. It was me running down a path, coming up with something, and taking it in a direction that was distracting me from my core business. By the time I realised I had done that, it was too late to reverse, but I was at least in a position where I could step aside and do something else for a few months to rebuild my reserves before coming back and taking another step. That coming back also gave me the chance to look hard at my business plan and think about whether miniatures had a place in that business plan, and if so, how I could explore that place constructively and in a way that wasn't going to put me into the same position that I had been the previous year. Hence, why I took my time to step back and this Kickstarter has taken 18 months longer than I'd originally intended it to. But we are here. It is now part of my plan. It is built into the strategy and it's a soft launch. I have looked around at other businesses and, and taken inspiration from them. So in order to create that soft launch, I had to go right back and look at my original plan and just strip out a lot of it. I had to strip out a lot of my ambitions, had to strip out a lot of my hubris, um, and I had to say, okay, look, what have I got? I've got four miniatures designs. I've got an artist to whom I promised money from a Kickstarter to help me make those designs. You know, I have an obligation to try and find in that money. Either I've got to find it in my pocket or we've got to go to Kickstarter, we've got to do something. But instead of going to Kickstarter with ambitions of massive miniatures ranges and white metal and distribution and packaging and the whole works, no, scale it right back to get just enough to pay the artist what I promised him he would get and to deliver to the backers exactly what I already have in hand. So there are stretch goals to the Kickstarter. I do have aspirations, I do have ambitions, but now what I'm doing is using this Kickstarter to test the market. 
So I'm saying, look, I've got these designs. This is my vision. These are my ideas for miniatures. This is what I'd like to produce more of. Come and have a look at them. See what you think. If enough people like them to a great enough degree that I raise enough money that I can do more, that I can either make more miniatures, I can expand the options available for those miniatures, I can even reach out and start making those miniatures in more materials, so I can go beyond just 3D printed resin, through to cold cast resin, through to white metal, if I can do that, great, but all of that will be predicated on people being prepared to put enough money up for me to do it. And this is, you know, this is the purest form of Kickstarter. This is what the Kickstarter founders expected it to be at the outset, which is people with an idea taking it to market to garner those crowdfunded monies to an extent that tells the developer, is this something I'm just going to do one and done? Or is it something that it's worth putting more time behind? So, and this is where miniatures now lie in Present Omega's business plan. Um, it is, let's find out if people are actually interested enough to want to back these miniatures. And that puts a big pressure on me because some people have built up enough of a, a fan base enough of a contacts list that they can put something up on Kickstarter and be sure that they're going to reach all, if not all the people, then enough people who are interested to tell them whether their product is worth pursuing or not. And I look at people like Ross Whitehorn at, at Craig on Games that I mentioned in the news, like Chris Nichols at Macrocosm Miniatures, who I'm collaborating with, hopefully, to turn my designs into white metal if we reach enough of a level. You know, those are guys who've been doing this for a long time. You know, they've built up a following, a fan base. They've got customers all over the world. They've got enthusiastic supporters. And if they put up a quick Kickstarter for a handful of miniatures, they can be confident that they're going to put through enough initial backers to at least put them into production. Um, and, and I had a conversation with Chris about this some years ago when he was telling me how easy it was uh, to get a Kickstarter up. And, and he, you know, he proved it. it wasn't with me. It was with another friend that they were in the pub, I think he told me. He was in the pub telling his friend about how easy it was to get a Kickstarter going. His friend didn't believe him. And he literally took some miniatures that he'd had made but hadn't yet put into production, grabbed the art he'd done for them, stuck them up on Kickstarter and created a campaign there and then in the pub. And that Kickstarter, if I remember rightly, raised about £7,000. You know, great. This is, this is good stuff. But he already had that baseline of enthusiasm and supporters. Um, and, and he had been through Kickstarter a couple of times already, so he knew the process. I'm completely new to this, so I'm trying to learn from talking to people, from reading articles, um, people have been good enough to send me links to, to um, collections of articles on how to do Kickstarter. And, and I'm trying to get it right in the sense of reaching enough people that enough people will know about the Kickstarter that I can be confident that the feedback I get from it is constructive. So I'm going to do these segments at the end of my podcasts over the next couple of months to talk about my 
build up to Kickstarter, how I've gone about it, and what I'm learning along the way. And that this is absolute step one, is that I have built this Kickstarter into my business plan for this year. It has a place in my strategy. Now, where that goes beyond that, what I learned from the Kickstarter, I don't know. But it tells me right up front in my strategy that I have to make the best effort on this Kickstarter I can. I have to reach the most people. I have to build the biggest mailing list I can. I have to build as much excitement and interest as possible if I'm going to be confident that this is going to deliver. At the same time, I'm still doing a full-time job. I still have a holiday booked. And I, I, you know, I, I can't commit 24 hours a day to doing this much as I'd like to. Um, but I have to work within my capacity. And that's not unreasonable because even beyond that Kickstarter, you know, I've still got games to design. I've still got books to write. I've still got publishing to do. And I can't spend all of my day every day running Kickstarters. That's not practical. It's not reasonable. Uh, and that doesn't make for a good business plan. So it's reasonable to say, can I run a Kickstarter around my full-time job so that when I can put that aside and go back to writing and publishing full-time, will there be capacity within that schedule to also run the occasional Kickstarter for new projects? Anyway, that's where I've begun. That's my starting point. Next week uh, in this section of the podcast, I'll talk more about how I got started practically and, and learning how to use Kickstarter and the frustrations and challenges that I've faced and, and I'm still facing. Okay. So thank you very much for listening. Um, if you are interested in the Kickstarter, do please check the notes on this episode where you'll find links to follow along, uh, sign up for the newsletter and get some behind the scenes insight. And if you want the real scoop on what's going on and to observe my uh, my commercial fumblings firsthand, uh, the best way to do that is to support the Patreon, where I blog regularly uh, and more candidly about what's going on behind the scenes in my business and in my developmental brain. All right. Thank you very much. And I'll see you again next time. Warning. Warning. Docking plants released. Decoupling complete. Thank you for visiting Precinct Omega Star Pharaoh. Safe journeys. Until next time.